0: We'll be Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two segments today I'm sure you'll be shocked to learn. The science journalist Lee Phillips will explain why nuclear power is essential to any serious decarbonization program. And then the political analyst Volodymyr Ishenko will talk about the Russian and Ukrainian ruling classes and what they gain and lose from war. Nuclear power has long been a major no on the left. It may be time to question that orthodoxy. As New York State saw when it shut the Indian Point Plant north of the city carbon emissions soared. And Germany, which is on track to shut its reactors by the end of this year, has turned to coal, the nastiest fuel of all, because of limited Russian gas supplies, a move approved of by the energy minister, a member of the Green Party, which has been implacably anti-nuke. The government is, however, now rethinking the nuclear shutdown, though the Greens, who are part of their governing coalition, may try to block any extension. In April, I had the energy economist Charles Komenoff on the show to argue against shutting existing nuclear plants for precisely those reasons. He was against building more. My next guest, the science journalist Lee Phillips, is all for building new ones. Though this will provoke alarm, he argues that the evidence shows nuclear to be the least dangerous of all sources of power. And by the way, none are free of danger. Lee is the co-author, along with Mikhail Rusworski of The People's Republic of Walmart, and has written for Nature, New Scientist, Science, The Guardian, The New Republic, and Jacobin, among others. Lee Phillips. You often hear environmentalists say that conservation and renewables could do it all, we don't really need nuclear power. What do you say
1: to that? just as 97% of uh, scientists accept the reality of anthropogenic global warming, the vast majority of scientists in this space accept that, that nuclear has to be part of the mix. If anything, the, the debate is really only what percentage of our electricity mix needs to come from nuclear The IPCC, for example, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, they have a series of what they call illustrative pathways, ways to keep within 1.5 degrees or or 2 degrees of warming. And all of these pathways include nuclear. I can talk about why that is necessary, if you like.
0: Yeah, why aren't renewables uh, and conservation enough? Why do we need nuclear?
1: It depends what we're talking about with respect to new renewables. What we need is, at least for a certain section of our electricity grid, it needs to be available when we need it. Uh, it needs to be available 24-7. The sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. <laughs> it's a bit of a cliche in, in, in that you see that particular line in almost every article written about that, that variable renewables. But it's true. And so we need something that is what's called firm, uh, that is available when we need it to back that stuff up. And if that thing that's firm uh, is not nuclear or hydro or geothermal, it's going to be natural gas or coal, as we've seen in, in, in Germany. Germany spent about half a trillion euros uh, trying to build out their clean energy primarily through wind and solar while shutting down their nuclear and at the moment they're tr- they're having to reopen coal plants in the face of uh, the sort of the Ukraine emergency that is the only other option that they have that is is firm that is uh, that can make sure that the hospitals have all of the electricity needed uh, for the ventilators and dialysis machines in a modern world we need to make sure that our electricity grid is reliable
0: and batteries can't uh, handle that
1: The batteries that we have at the moment, they're not much different from the batteries that are in your laptop. So, you know, they're going to run out after a few hours. There may be some breakthroughs in in the near future, but that technology isn't there yet. But in any case, the scale of batteries that you would need, we need to cover periods of time when the sun isn't shining, the wind isn't blowing. For not just a few hours, but for a few days, or even in some cases for a few weeks where there's just uh, wind droughts, for example, in the winter. Tokyo, for example, there's a few days a year, maybe about three days a year, where they're uh, bludgeoned by uh, typhoons and the solar panels aren't going to be available then. And you're going to have to turn off the, the wind turbines if that were what they were using. And so to replace all of the electricity required by Tokyo, the amount of batteries that you would need to uh, replace that is so scandalously large that even a public system Uh, that has no interest or has less interest in in profit, still wouldn't find it sensible to, uh, to allocate such an enormous amount of capital to that construction. So nuclear does have to be part of the mix in those locations where you don't have other options for clean, firm electricity. So other options are hydroelectric, large scale hydroelectricity or geothermal, but those are geographically constrained. And hydro in, in particular also is very land intensive. And of course, uh, what we can not be doing is, is solving the climate change problem and throwing biodiversity under the bus. We have to solve both of these things at the same time.
0: Battery production is not all that pretty a process, is it?
1: No, this is the uh, this is the other idea. Batteries still need uh, stuff uh, taken out of the ground, like like lithium, and we're already begin going to be hitting some constraints uh, in terms of the economic feasibility of, of lithium resources out of the ground as uh, prices go up. Other geological resources become economical. So over time, it'll things will pan out. But uh, we're in a bit of a time crunch at the moment, so the priority has to be if we're going to be using batteries, let's use them pr- uh, primarily for electric vehicles rather than uh, using them in the uh, electricity grid where they're not necessary. Batteries do have a role within the electricity grid, but more for an, things like, like ancillary services. I'm getting a bit wonkish here, but basically that means when sort of, this is some trips, batteries can uh, can respond uh, within milliseconds in a way that, say, gas response uh, takes a few minutes. So there is a role for it, but it's a very, very constrained role.
0: Whenever you mention nuclear power, of course, a lot of progressives freak out, environmentalists freak out. And there's a recent headline, in Counterpunch, that captures some of these fears. Nuclear power is racist, sexist, and ageist, so why do some progressives support it? Uh, I'm sure you've heard all these arguments before, but let's let's, uh, deal with these one by one. Hurts women more than men, and it hurts fetuses in utero. What do you
1: say to that? So I read that article. It's kind of funny uh, to to suggest that ladies are more um, radio sensitive than gentlemen. There's a gender essentialism there, which is a little bit frustrating. Um, To the extent that this is true, that there is greater uh, radio sensitivity, it is such low levels that it doesn't make a difference with respect to anybody working at a, a power plant. A great example of this would be a single return flight from New York to London exposes somebody to a greater level of ionizing radiation than uh, a lifetime's work at a nuclear power plant.
0: Working in the power plant, not living near it.
1: Exactly. So these are the people who are going to have the greatest level of exposure to ionizing radiation. And the logic of the author of that counterpunch piece would be that women shouldn't uh, go on flights.
0: And then um, fetuses in utero. Same story?
1: Same, exactly the same story, yeah.
0: Children living near nuclear plants show higher rates of leukemia,
1: according to that article. What about that? This is a fiction. There are absolutely no studies showing this.
0: And then, of course, there's the complaint that uh, there's something inherently racist about uranium mining. It hurts the indigenous more than everyone else.
1: I mean, we have to be very, very honest here about the truth of environmental racism, but this isn't just true with respect to uranium mining. Uh, this is also true with mining in general and uh, industry and agriculture. In fact, all there's no sort of special sauce that uranium has that makes it more anti-indigenous. And the, the, the response that we have to have to those issues are you know, the, the same issues that we have with respect to all uh, sorts of mining or agricultural or forestry or industrial issues. Strong trade unions, strong regulation, and ultimately, one day, hopefully, public ownership and decommodification. The classical socialist arguments we had with respect to to any sort of environmental racism, to hold up um, uranium mining as uniquely racist with respect to First Nations, is there's no grounds for it. Let's speak to what um, First Nations actually say about this. In the north of Saskatchewan, which is where we get most of our uranium uh, in North America, that area is almost entirely indigenous. And uh, uranium mining is is one of the major employers up there. In fact, it is the largest industrial employer of First Nations in Canada. These are good union jobs, high-paid, family-supporting, community-supporting jobs, and the First Nations there actually are concerned about not the existence of the mines, they want the mines because they're good work. Um, They're concerned about the fact that in the United States there have been a number of closures of nuclear plants, which could mean that there are loss of jobs. And the reason why these are such good jobs is that over the past many, many decades, we've had strong trade union struggle, strong um, Aboriginal struggle, strong uh, environmental struggle, to the point that these are fantastic jobs to be had, rather than the situation that was in, in the 1940s and the 1950s. We should thank the, the struggle of, of, of progressives over, over the generations to deliver mining in, in the north of Saskatchewan as, as now such a, a good job.
0: So in other words, it just doesn't have to be that way. That's a completely spurious objection.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't have to be that way.
0: You mentioned land use in passing a little while ago. Uh, That's a big thing that people don't always think about. Uh, Compare the land use required for various uh, sources of energy.
1: There is a fantastic um, piece of work that just came out um, a few weeks ago in PLOS One. One of the first truly comprehensive looks at the land use intensity of different energy sources it's very tricky to find what it is is properly comprehensive that really looks at the full life cycle of all the different aspects uh, that go into the production of, of energy. So, for example, taking into account the, the mining of uh, not just the fuel but the uh, the different components of any energy infrastructure, and not just uh, say the the land footprint of the uh, uh, the institution itself. Uh, this report concludes that uh, the nuclear far and away has the the, the lowest land use intensity of all energy sources. Photovoltaic uh, solar in particular has a, has a pretty high uh, land footprint, um, higher even than, than coal, it turns out. And again, I want to return to the, the point I made a few minutes ago that um, in solving the climate change issue, we can't throw biodiversity under the bus. We have to take into account, you know, fragmentation of land uh, and habitat loss as well. There are people who um, favor nuclear simply because um, at the scale of the clean energy build out that we're going to be needing to radically decarbonize to get to net zero, we're going to be needing to basically double or quadruple our electricity generation. That means that there's a huge amount of land that will be taken up if uh, if the bulk of that, uh, that clean energy comes from things like solar. So it's not anti-solar. Solar absolutely has a role to play. And in some parts of the world, it's going to play a very huge role, particularly in areas with very... Uh, large levels of solar insulation, like California, North Africa, uh, Australia, and, uh, and and Spain, but it's about right sizing it and right sizing nuclear as well to uh, uh, within the energy mix.
0: It seems to me that in, with a problem as big as climate uh, and clean energy generation, that it's not a matter of either or. It seems like we have to uh, say all of the
1: above, all of the above, absolutely. As I was saying. Depending on the location, we'll change, the location will change what that mix looks like. And we have to get away from the idea that we're all in on just solar and wind. I'll give you another example. Wave and, and Tidal. They're still intermittent. They're still variable uh, renewable sources, but they're they're much less intermittent than wind and solar. And so, in those locations uh, where they have the uh, the best you know good geography for wave energy and uh, and tidal, that should be a very large part of the mix as well. So it's not uh, nuclear instead of these things, but nuclear as well as these things. And obviously, in the prairies, uh, in the Midwest, you're not going to have any wave energy or, or tidal. Oh,
0: but they have a lot of space and a lot of sun. And-
1: those areas they do absolutely and solar and wind are going to play a a significant role there but again that still needs to uh, have that firm uh, backup for when uh, the wind isn't blowing the sun isn't shining
0: i'm speaking with the science journalist lee phillips okay then another objection of course is the risk of meltdown fukushima's two three many fukushima's what do you say to that
1: What we have to be looking for in terms of uh, clean energy is not a perfectly safe um, energy option. There is no such thing as something that is perfectly safe. What we have to be looking for is the thing that is the most safe. And so we have to look at metrics like the number of deaths per kilowatt hour. And once again, even including Fukushima through my island and, and of course, Chernobyl, nuclear still comes out best of all energy options. It has the fewest deaths per kilowatt hour of of any energy source. Um, And you think, well, where's, where are the deaths? Where's the morbidity uh, uh, coming from with respect to solar? Well, people have to climb up roofs to, uh, uh, to put on uh, solar panels and they can fall off them. Um, the uh, solar panels, the, their production involves the use of a lot of heavy metals, such as lead and cadmium. And the process of, uh, processing of that does have negative health um, outcomes. As I said a second ago, we really have to stress which is the, the safest rather than uh, one that is perfectly safe. That simply doesn't exist. But, however, even with this, Let's be very clear. Zero people died um, at Three Mile Island, and zero people died at Fukushima. You'll hear people talk about tens of thousands of people died at Fukushima. They died from the, the, the natural disaster there, from the tsunami and the earthquake. Nobody died from the, uh, from the industrial accident that uh, was, was Fukushima. And then uh, on top of that, modern reactor designs are, uh, have, have been engineered to have passive safety. That is to say, they're walk-away safe such a situation would not occur. The only way that these passive safety systems could fail would be if the laws of physics change. It's as likely as balls suddenly rolling up hills um, spontaneously. Even at this very, very high level of of, of safety that already exists compared to all other energy sources, we're getting even safer. Just to
0: underscore this point, you're saying that nuclear power per kilowatt hour is safer than um, wind and solar.
1: That's right,
0: yep. Um, I'm sure a lot of people will find that hard to believe, but uh, <laughs> there's actual yeah. evidence for this claim, right?
1: Part of it comes down to the fact that Chernobyl was a spectacular. There were a large number of deaths there. Not anywhere near as a number of deaths as, as some of the really spectacular accidents we've had with hydroelectric. But it was not a small number of people.
0: Okay, and then uh, the other uh, zinger that people think they have is, what are you going to do with the waste?
1: The waste is not the issue that people think it is. Ninety-six percent of 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 waste is unused is 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 used fuel. That fuel can be one option is that it can be reprocessed. I and mean, France reprocesses its waste. Um, at the end of that, there's you know only four percent that's left to deposited any sort of uh, safety risk, and the scale of risk is then you know only for about three hundred years. We have. Uh, To deal with toxic waste from, again, the heavy metals that we use for the production of of solar panels, again, lead, cadmium, et cetera, et cetera. Um, The toxicity there comes not from radioactivity, which, of course, declines over time, but from the elements themselves. So until the end of the universe, uh, lead and cadmium will continue to be toxic. Uh, now, we can absolutely deal with them through regulation, make sure that solar panels are not just shipped off to Asia for, for children to pick over for their copper parts, and make sure that that industry uh, uh, takes care of its end-of-life waste in the way that nuclear plants do. But I would say that that poses a risk open-endedly in a way that radio toxicity, as I said, declines over time. And it's not as if it's it's worse. Secondly, keeping this waste in dry casks stored long-term what we're looking for in terms of long-term storage is what are called deep geological repositories. We're looking for geological formations that have been stable for billions of years, where it takes millions of years for for water to pass, even just like a a, a meter's length. Basically what we're looking for is locations where that storage is completely separated from the biosphere. These locations that that, that, that the rock hasn't moved in, in, in billions of years, I just don't see any way that that could pose any risk to us up here uh, on the top of the earth.
0: That seems to me a lot of people who object to nuclear power are um, comparing it to some kind of perfectly safe alternative that doesn't actually exist.
1: That's absolutely correct. We can see in Germany at the moment that this, this alternative, that only going for wind and solar, is uh, much more expensive it doesn't deliver the emissions reduction that uh, the nuclear does and leaves the society open to dependence on natural gas which of course we need to get rid of it also exposes them to energy security issues. right next door France uh, they built out their uh, their nuclear uh, program in the this 1970s and 1980s and they have some of the cheapest electric or had until the um, the recent crisis and uh, some of the cheapest electricity in uh, in, in Europe. Uh, The fastest decarbonization uh, rates in the world uh, come from nuclear and or hydro. Uh, So we have a number of different locations in the world that do have largely decarbonized electricity grids. France is one, Sweden is one, Norway is one, British Columbia is another, uh, Quebec is another. What do they all have in common is that they depend on this, what I said before, a firm, clean electricity supply, either hydro or nuclear or some combination of the two.
0: And it does take a long time to build these plants, right?
1: It certainly uh, takes longer than to, to, to build out uh, solar farms and onshore uh, onshore wind. Offshore wind uh, faces significant rollout challenges as well. And one of the things that the advocates of 100% renewables will, uh, will articulate is we could have 100% renewables if we depend more on a greater uh, level of offshore wind, which is much more dependable, greater build-out of transmission continent-spanning smart grids, uh, even globe-spanning smart grids. Well, I mean, there's some, I would argue that that actually ameliorates the problem of intermittency and it doesn't solve it. Uh, But even there, if you're going to talk about uh, that, then you will immediately run up against temporal challenges as well. One of the fundamental problems that we're looking at in terms of the the time that it takes to build something out, uh, large projects, that is, is that the West just got really bad at building large projects, largely thanks to um, neoliberalism and the, the sort of the fear of mega projects uh, by, by, by states? And of course, mega projects tend to be fairly unattractive to, uh, to the private sector outside of uh, significant government handouts um, to de-risk de- that activity, and it would simply be cheaper for the state to do that anyway. Um, if you look at other uh, locations that have been less. Um, affected by uh, neoliberalism, such as South Korea. Uh, South Korea is building out um, uh, nuclear power plants. And for example, the UAE, they built out eight reactors over the course of 10 years, no, sorry, eight years. Uh, So basically, you know, uh, two years per reactor. And that is the sort of time scale that is is amenable. But the other thing that we should be saying in terms of uh, the time here, some environmental actors say, we just don't have the time. I would say, sure, Um, the best time to start building out our nuclear fleet was 10, 20 years ago. The second best time to be building out our nuclear fleet is today. In 10, 15 years' time, if we don't have that firm supply, we will immediately be turning to the next immediate uh, option to to back up our wind and solar, just like Germany is at the moment, natural gas and, and coal. So we don't really have any choice. If, if we start turning off our nuclear power plants, if we don't build out new uh, new plants, the reality is if we want to have a a, a a grid that allows our hospitals to run 24-7 and any social society would also want our hospitals to run 24-7, then we need uh, clean, firm backup to, to wind and solar.
0: Now, finally, um, this is not based on anything scientific, but my feeling is that uh, some of the objections to nuclear power are receding; that they're not as strong as they were even several years ago. What do you think about that?
1: Oh, that's absolutely true. In the last five to ten years, uh, there's been a wholesale uh, transformation, and I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that people are very, uh, very serious about climate change. And I think there's also, excuse me here, but there's something of a, uh, a generational shift as well. That you know, I can't remember who said it, but that, that science advances. Uh, one funeral at a time. The anti-nuclear movement is largely a product of the 1960s and 1970s, and a lot of this, really, to be fair, um, was uh, it was caught up in anti-war and anti-nuclear weapons, and there was a conflation of nuclear weapons with nuclear energy. Um, thankfully, nuclear medicine hasn't caught up, but been been caught up in that. So it's very very difficult for those people who were part of that movement. Uh, which did many other things, which was very, very necessary. I mean, these are the people who created the modern environmental movement. And as a result of that, we've had so many victories, from lead pollution to acid rain to um, ozone layer. Uh, and and today, you know, they gave birth to the modern climate movement. So we have to really thank them a, a great deal for what they've done. At the same time, there's this one little aspect where, you know, they just got it wrong. And it's very, very hard for humans to admit when they're wrong. Whereas young people today didn't grow up with that. But they did grow up with climate change as an issue. And for them, this is an existential uh, issue. And they look at the data, they look at the science, they look at the scientific consensus on the need for nuclear. And they say, what are these people doing? Why will they not um, change their mind? I would say that what's really, really interesting is that um, within some of the major green NGOs, so the pieces, the Friends of the Earth, the NRDC's, uh, and so on, who are very, very anti-nuclear, at least publicly, if you speak to some of the figures, senior figures, upper levels of these organizations, some of them will privately concede to you that nuclear needs to be part of the mix, but they are petrified that if they come, if they're the first ones to come out in favor of nuclear, they will lose all of their donations. They'll lose their uh, their backers, uh, the big foundations. What I'm hoping will happen is that one of these major um, green NGOs will take the plunge, and come out in favour of nuclear and the sky won't fall and the donations will continue to flow and then the rest of the environmental movement will follow suit. Follow and I think we're probably like a year or two years away from that. And then we'll just forget about this, uh, this issue in, entirely. I, what I would say is that a bigger issue in terms of um, challenge to roll out is not so much, I would say the environmental movement or these, these sort of older figures in the environmental movement are sort of a, a major block. But another big challenge is the fact that, and this is where I would say that nu- it's not just the left should embrace nuclear, but the nuclear needs the left. The reality is that large-scale nuclear is very capital-intensive, which means that market actors are very reluctant to participate in this. Advanced nuclear, small modular reactors, promises to be much more market-friendly. But even and maybe they will be, you know, pumping out smaller uh, reactors and factories on an assembly line. Uh, but even there, you know, a number of these are still early stages. They're pilot reactors or, or uh, you know, paper reactors. And there still needs to be some significant industrial policy to take these ideas from lab bench and pilot projects into commercialization, which, again, is a very, you know, that's a classically sort of social democratic suite of policies rather than just letting the market rip. So in both cases, whether we're talking about large scale um, reactors, conventional reactors or uh, or advanced reactors, small uh, modular reactors, um, there needs to be some sig- significant shift away from neoliberalism, for market fundamentalism, and a re-embrace of classic social democratic industrial policy and economic planning. As I say, it isn't just that the left needs to embrace nuclear, nuclear needs to embrace the left.
0: That was a science journalist, Lee Phillips. His website is leaphillips.work, L-E-I-G-H-P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S dot work. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break.
2: Radioaktivität Für dich und mich im All entsteht.
0: of Radioactivitate by Kraftwerk. Next, Russia and Ukraine, specifically the ruling classes of both. My next guest, Volodymyr Ischenko, has an intriguing explanation for Putin's invasion, to consolidate his rule at home, particularly his elite support. What does that Russian ruling class look like? Is cronies an adequate word to describe them? No, says Ischenko. It's better to think of them as political capitalists in both Russia and Ukraine, and the rest of the so-called post-Soviet space. They're thoroughly dependent on the regimes that license them to make money, and the collapse of their sponsoring governments would ruin them. Nor can they tolerate the competitive threat of transnational capital, promoted by the IMF and other Western interests in the name of fighting corruption. For the working classes of these countries, both the local nationalists and the interloping internationalists have little to offer. But they set the terms of elite conflict. Volodymyr Ischenko is a research associate at the Institute of East European Studies at the Free University of Berlin. He is, I suppose I should say, in these hyperpolarized times, Ukrainian. He spells his first name just like Zelensky does. Volodymyr Ischenko. Most people who watch Russia closely didn't expect an invasion. Some people in the West are ascribing it to Putin's personal grandiosity. How do you read the motives for uh, the Russian invasion? Why?
2: That's, of course, a long story. And uh, there are many important factors that led to the invasion. I have my own story about the class conflict behind the invasion that I believe is uh, seriously underestimated and probably not even discussed even on the left, which where the discussions are at this moment are quite superficial. I see the invasion as pushing and protecting the interests of the uh, Russian ruling class as a whole. Not specifically of any particular oligarchic fraction or specific person, but rather collective class interests. So in this way, starting the war, in whatever form, Putin defends these class interests against the class opponents, uh, which uh, did make them quite uh, trouble in the post-Soviet space, specifically the professional middle class, in, not only in, in Ukraine, but in Belarus and Russia. And this class is allied with transnational class, which is uh, much stronger than uh, the Russian ruling class. This invasion, Putin is capable to consolidate the class and move it to the highest stage in its political organization and its uh, ideological articulation. Who is this ruling class you're talking about exactly? I would identify them as political capitalists. This is the term which comes from Max Weber, but now has been applied by some sociologists like Ivan Seleni to the Eastern European post-Soviet societies, or by economist Branko Milanovic, who wrote primarily about China, but I believe it also applies to Russia and the post-Soviet space. And political capitalists are a specific kind of capitalists whose major competitive advantage is selective benefits uh, from the state. Unlike those capitalists whose major advantage is some technological innovation, Silicon Valley, Valley, for example, and so on, or those capitalists who can rely on the extremely cheap labor force. Unlike those, the post-Soviet ruling class relied primarily on the state, on the collapsing Soviet state that they were capable to first to basically to steal and then to exploit in order to get the competitive advantage of the market. Without this state, they would rather lose in the competition.
0: Yeah, it's not really like a Western bourgeoisie, which is formed around giant pools of capitals and capitalists. Um, It's much more state-centered than we would understand uh, in North America
2: or Western Europe. Yeah, exactly. Uh, The state plays a far more important role. Of course, you you may mention that Elon Musk benefited from some subsidies. Grants, whatever, and many other icons of entrepreneurial success benefit from preferential tax regimes, from some forms of protectionism. And these are the stories that would uh, appear in the biographies of this or that, uh, Stephen Jobs, Elon Musk, or Zuckerberg, or whatever. But these kind of capitalists are not fundamentally dependent on the state. They are not fundamentally dependent on the specific people holding specific offices, like in Russia. Elon Musk would survive under the Republican government, under the Democratic government, even probably under the third party government. U.S. capitalists like uh, Peter Thiel, who are thinking about autonomous islands, that would be completely independent from any nation state, this kind of capital is, of course, uh, far more independent from the state. Unlike any of the major Russian companies that would uh, uh, unlikely survive if the uh, Russian state would stop existence in that particular form which exists now and which gives them so important protection. So that's why they are so obsessed with sovereignty, which is not some 19th century idea, concept, an outdated idea that is not so important for many of the Western capitalists. No, for, for the Russian political capitalists, sovereignty is precisely that, that there is some territory where they have a monopoly control, over the state and where they allow no one to interfere and to allow into their financial flows and to in extracting the rent that they do extract from the Russian economy.
0: How large a formation is this?
2: I can't say about the numbers, but this is the uh, significant ruling class. And these are not just Putin's crannies. These are not just people who are personally connected to Putin and who rely on that. It's it's, it's a larger uh, formation. The people who benefit from the low-level uh, officials in Russia, in the so-called Sylavity enforcers, the people in the military, people in the Russian Security Service, FSB, thousands or dozens of thousands of people, at least. And also that's also the even larger middle class that is connected to the Russian state who works for the state corporations and who also is materially benefiting from the state in this particular form, unlike the for western segments of the uh, professional middle class uh, whose uh, career opportunities, whose incomes are dependent on the connections to the Western markets, to the Western institutions in this or that form.
0: So what would the uh, invasion of Ukraine accomplish for this, uh, this ruling class?
2: They defend their interests against a threat which existed on the structural level, at least since the 2000s. But recently, uh, they've been also seeing that their political uh, organization is becoming vulnerable. We've seen the escalating uh, revolutions and uprisings in the post-Soviet states on the periphery of Russia. In those countries where quite many people didn't even believe that uh, any massive uprising would be possible, even among the experts, no one would predict a massive uprising in Belarus in 2020. No one would predict the massive uprising in Kazakhstan. Of course, post-facto, many people find uh, many reasons why it happened, but I can't recall any specific predictions that we would see so massive protests, the violent, violent uprisings. These revolutions and uprisings, not just in those two countries, but also in Armenia recently, in Kyrgyzstan, and of course the three revolutions in Ukraine, they are fundamentally uh, related with the crisis of uh, representation of the personalist authoritarian governments which dominate the post-Soviet space. And, and this kind of governments in Marxism, we, we have a concept of bonapartism, a non-ideological authoritarian rule that tries to balance the fractions of the ruling class and also give some concessions to the subaltern classes, but it cannot propose any ideological national development project to form any kind of hegemony. These kind of regimes are fundamentally fragile because there is a problem of successor. Who would succeed Lukashenko? Who would succeed Nazarbayev? Who would succeed Putin eventually? And the problem of successor is quite a big problem for a dictator because those successors should be smart enough to succeed him, but also not that smart in order not to remove his predecessor too early. That's a lot to think about. And also the succession point is the point of vulnerability for the elites because the conflicts among them are escalating and they are now thinking what would happen when Putin is passing away or retiring and whether we are going to win or lose under the new uh, Russian president. With the invasion, Putin is capable to consolidate uh, the regime politically, so the, any kind of like thoughts about fleeing from the regime, about defecting, now are put away. Despite all this, those sanctions, despite uh, all these the profits and properties they are losing, the ruling class is becoming more consolidated. Yeah, there was a lot of talk um, early on that uh, there would be a rebellion
0: against Putin, an elite rebellion against Putin. That hasn't happened. Um, so wh- how do you explain the, the lack of a rebellion given the sanctions, which are, I presume are doing some actual damage to their
2: lives and fortunes? They understand that in case of the Russian defeat, in case of collapse of the Putin's regime, they would be, all, of, all of them would lose, all of them. Any rebellion at this point that jeopardize the very pillars of the regime are against their collective interests. So I don't think they would see any serious rebellion, at least in the short term. In the short term, they are becoming more consolidated. But Like in the long term, of course, those processes that are starting now, for example, with the more specific ideological articulation for the regime, with playing, with nationalism, with uh, reviving the Soviet symbols, in the long term, it's a dangerous game uh, because the uh, people may uh, start taking ideology seriously and may demand from the ruling class to live up uh, to the expectations that they have promised them. Because at some point, the Kremlin would need to explain in m- more specifically what this so-called special operation is about, why they're killing so many people, why so many Russian soldiers died, why they killed so many Ukrainians. And they would require much more articulated answers what it's all about than... Um, empty signifiers about denazification and uh, other things that can be interpreted in the millions of ways.
0: I'm speaking with Volodymyr Ishenko, a research associate at the Institute of East European Studies at the Free University of Berlin. What about the Ukrainian side? What does the, the ruling class there look like, and how do they relate to uh, Zelensky?
2: Genealogically, these are the same political capitalists that uh, emerged in the course of the post-Soviet collapse. Also, they stole uh, from the state, uh, from the collapse in Soviet institutions and from the collapse in Soviet economy. Uh, And they also instrumentalized at that point uh, Ukrainian nationalism in order to legitimate their claim on a part of the disintegrating Soviet state. Now they are in uh, quite ambiguous relations with, uh, with the Russian ruling class. They, they did have their own problems with the local professional middle class, with the local civil society, with the transnational capital, which uh, appeared very serious, uh, especially after the uh, Euromaidan revolution in 2014 with the, uh, all this uh, anti-corruption escalation. But at the same time, they, of course, they are interested in uh, reaping their own part of the rent from their sovereign territory. So that uh, explain at least partially the, the ambiguous positions between Russia and the West and all this, those uh, multi-vector hesitations, which were the main line of the Ukrainian foreign policy before 2014. After 2014, this part of the Ukrainian ruling class get into troubles, and other uh, fractions of Ukrainian oligarchs tried to accommodate to the uh, strengthening positions of the transnational capital in Ukraine, to the strengthening power of the Western institutions. And they were trying to sell themselves as indispensable figures in the fight against Putin. So the argument was, if you are starting to dig too much into corruption of Poroshenko or Zelensky, you are destabilizing Ukraine, you are destabilizing the government in Ukraine, and you are playing in the hands of Putin. And this would be probably the most typical answer to any criticism of Ukraine right now, on whatever terms. So this... Confrontation is strategy of one uh, section of the Ukrainian ruling class, which is weaker now, and more like accommodation is strategy, strategy which is more popular uh, game in Ukraine. They are defining the uh, two major fractions of Ukrainian ruling class. Has
0: the war um, consolidated the Ukrainian
2: ruling class at all? That's quite early to say because too much is dependent on the outcome of the war and the existence of Ukrainian state, and the borders of Ukrainian state. And of course, with uh, some humiliating defeat, we would see likely many disintegrating processes. But at this moment, so far as we can project from several months, Zelensky is consolidating power, and uh, Ukrainian oligarchs uh, have lost significant parts of their property, on the occupied areas, they've lost opportunities for any political leverage they did have before the invasion, and they were significantly more powerful than uh, any individual fraction of the Russian ruling class, for example, in relation to Putin. But now now the criticism of the government would be uh, very quickly repressed as inappropriate in the time of the war, they lost their media opportunities with the unification of the TV stations since the invasion started. And now, for example, the richest uh, person in Ukraine, Renat Akhmetov, basically shut down his vast media empire. One of the reasons to close his uh, popular TV stations was that uh, any political life during the time of the war is not really possible right now and that was just um, unnecessary burden. For him also, it was not profitable, so it was better to get rid of them in order to not to be labelled as an oligarch, according to Zelensky's policies. So so far, Zelensky is consolidating power, and oligarchs are not ready to start any open attack on him. And uh, there is also persecution of so-called pro-Russian opposition, but not just them but also the leader of the nationalist opposition, Petro Poroshenko. And uh, so far as, as Ukraine is not losing, Zelensky is becoming more and more uh, powerful president in the country um, with very, very significant powers.
0: What was the relation of this Ukrainian elite uh, to uh, Western operations, like the NGOs that are very active there? Foundations and governments have strong influence on the local media. And, of course, the IMF has been very active uh, in in setting Ukrainian economic policy. What was the relation of that uh, Ukrainian elite to um,
2: those external forces? For most of them, they were not easy at all. So the the, the major agenda of the Western institutions and IMF specifically for Ukraine, but not only for Ukraine, but for most of the post-Soviet countries was anti-corruption. Anti-corruption, transparency means that uh, political capitalists are actually deprived of their major competitive advantage of the selective state benefits of all those shady and shadow transactions of the control over the court system and so on and so forth. Anti-corruption policies are benefiting a more efficient capitalist fractions, particularly the transnational capital. The oligarchs were resisting that. Even the pro-Western, so-called pro-Western parts of the Ukrainian ruling class, but let's say but Petro Poroshenko, who was the previous Ukrainian president, was trying to sabotage all those uh, anti-corruption reforms and IMF requirements as far as he could, and also Zelensky as well. But gradually, uh, this uh, pro-Western part of Ukrainian civil society and the uh, Western institutions directly are taking more and more control over the Ukrainian state enterprises, over the state bodies. Uh, In these policies, it's quite obvious that not Ukrainian workers are winning, or ordinary Ukrainian citizens. Instead, we are seeing quite harsh labor reform right now, that puts about 70% of Ukrainian labor out of the uh, labor regulations. And they benefit, of course, the uh, stronger fractions of uh, the uh, global capitalist class. Okay, so let's um, do a little crystal ball gazing.
0: You said that uh, that Putin felt threatened by um, other political forces and the war was in part an attempt to consolidate his rule, what are the long-term prospects of some threat, say the professional managerial class or whatever, um, asserting itself politically uh, to undermine the personalist, bonapartist
2: structure of Putin's state? That's that's exactly, that's a crystal ball, because a lot depends on the outcomes of the war, which uh, I'm not taking any risk to predict right now. Basically, there are two scenarios. One is the disintegration of the sovereign center of capital accumulation in the post-Soviet space, and the post-Soviet elites in Eastern Europe, in Central Asia, they would start to reorient other centers of capital accumulation, specifically EU, United States, and Central Asia, certainly towards China, and the the most disastrous outcome suppose that will be the disintegration of Russia at least quite many people are now speaking about that in case uh Russia is uh, capable to withstand in this war not necessarily to win what whatever they plan to win, but uh, not to lose in a humiliating way and also to save the regime, the regime is likely to be uh, transforming into more mobilizationist, into more, um, yeah, of course, consolidated and authoritarian, but also more ideological, more uh, involving the ideological mobilization of Russian citizens, uh, probably under the conservative nationalist agenda. This development of the regime, in, especially if the, uh, what we are calling the new Cold War would escalate and we would see the formation of the ideological blocks in the world like we, we did have under the old Cold War. This may uh, bring the opportunities for the uh, formation of the stronger counter-hegemonies, which uh, fundamentally uh, depend on the uh, stronger hegemonic policies of the ruling class. And in response to them, the uh, subaltern classes would be able to form the counter-hegemonies from the below, for the stronger political organizations, the more articulated ideologies. that would go much uh, beyond the current level of uh, populist politics with the loose uh, coalitions, uh, very horizontal networks that have a lot of problems that we've already seen with many expectations and aspirations by the revolutions in many spaces, by the politicians like Jeremy Corbyn or Bernie Sanders, which uh, unfortunately until this moment they were ending usually in quite disappointed defeats. But the formation of stronger counter-hegemonies, we may uh, finally get the opportunities for the revival of the social revolutions. The revolutions that would not simply bring down a dictator and uh, weaken the state, as happened in case of the post-Soviet so-called Maidan revolutions uh, that were opening the uh, opportunities for the transnational capital. Uh, but we would probably get another wave wave of social revolutions another wave that would follow the what we've seen uh after the first world war the second world war hopefully we, will, we won't get into the third world war but nevertheless the increased interimperialist competition would be facilitating also the social revolutionary response and probably the uh, Russia would uh, turn once again into a uh, place of a trade social revolution as uh, it was in the beginning of the 20th century.
0: So these would be social revolutions that would not uh, please the IMF or the National Endowment for Democracy?
2: That's the whole idea of the social revolution, to make a breakthrough to social equality, not to the IMF requirements to build a more rational society with the popular participation and not just to give your state for profit for transnational capitalist class what people expect from the revolutions some rapid changes for the better some people are speaking about the end of revolutions no the revolutions has not ended they are multiple in many parts of the world in many parts of the world people rebel and they bring down the governments but what happened next and we don't see the breakthroughs to the social equalities, to the better states, to any kind of like modernization. We rather see the return of the same problems in just about in a few years. And then we need to, to, to start another revolution once more. That's why we had three revolutions in the, in the life of one generation in Ukraine. Of course, we, we need a different kind of revolution and we need to think what kind of uh, social processes, what kind of changes into society and the politics would make them possible. And there are reasons to be optimistic. Of course, if you won't get into the disastrous third world war between the major imperialist powers or, and, of course, if we would be capable to survive the uh, climate change and um, prevented the most disastrous
0: outcomes. That was some of Radioactivitate by Kraftwerk. Next, Russia and Ukraine, specifically the ruling classes of both. My next guest, Volodymyr Ischenko, has an intriguing explanation for Putin's invasion, to consolidate his rule at home, particularly his elite support. What does that Russian ruling class look like? Is cronies an adequate word to describe them? No, says Ischenko, it's better to think of them as political capitalists in both Russia and Ukraine, and the rest of the so-called post-Soviet space. They're thoroughly dependent on the regimes that license them to make money, and the collapse of their sponsoring governments would ruin them. Nor can they tolerate the competitive threat of transnational capital, promoted by the IMF and other Western interests in the name of fighting corruption. For the working classes of these countries, both the local nationalists and the interloping internationalists have little to offer but they set the terms of elite conflict. Volodymyr Ischenko is a research associate at the Institute of East European Studies at the Free University of Berlin. He is, I suppose I should say, in these hyperpolarized times, Ukrainian. He spells his first name just like Zelensky does. Volodymyr Ischenko. That was Volodymyr Ischenko, a research associate at the Institute of East European Studies at Free University of Berlin? That was Volodymyr Ischenko, a research associate at the Institute of East European Studies at the Free University of Berlin. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Eterweller, Airwaves, also by Kraftwerk. Till next week, bye.